This is the Heartland Daily Podcast. everyone and welcome to the podcast. This is Anne-Marie Schieber from Healthcare News. There is a new drug that promises to delay the onset of type 1 diabetes. Now this sounds like a huge achievement until you learn the price tag. A full course of T-Zield costs just under $200,000. Is it worth it? To answer that, I've invited Greg Gervin back onto the podcast. Greg is a fellow at FreeOp, the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity and Research's Drug Pricing. Good to have you back with us, Greg. Hey, thanks for having me on. It's, it's great to be back. Greg, tell us about T-Zield. When was it approved and what exactly does it do? Yeah, sure. So T-Zield is uh, a new drug developed by a relatively small biotech company, Prevention Bio. And this drug uh, was approved late last year and is indicated to delay the onset of type 1 diabetes. So really quick, uh, the difference between type 1 and type 2 diabetes Mm-hmm. Type 1 diabetes is much uh, less common form of the disease, and it is not reversible. Uh, unlike uh, type 2 diabetes, where the disease is generally preventable and even in some cases reversible with, with lifestyle changes, diet and exercise, for example, mm-hmm. type 1 diabetes is, is an autoimmune disorder and and once somebody has it they have to receive insulin for the rest of their lives in order to survive and so what typically happens when somebody is uh is is going to be diagnosed with type 1 diabetes is that they have uh t-cells in their body that are uh known to be autoreactive which means that they end up killing cells that you need in your body. In this case, there are T cells that kill the beta cells in your pancreas, and those are the cells that produce insulin that processes sugar in your blood. And so um, when this happens, um, you know, a person then has to replace all that insulin that their body is no longer producing. And so what this drug does is it binds to those autoreactive T cells and prevents them from killing the beta cells that produce insulin. So in this way, uh, the drug delays the onset of type 1 diabetes. Now, it's important to remember that this is not a cure. It does not uh, completely prevent uh, type 1 diabetes. It only delays it and It's also important to remember that it does not delay the onset for everyone who takes the drug. And we can Hmm. get into that a little bit in terms of uh, the clinical trials. Okay, so the price of this drug, a full course, is $194,000. I think that's like 14 um, uh, doses. Uh, the maker justifies this cost because it says that it will save money elsewhere in the healthcare system. And you hear that for other drugs. Is that necessarily true? Uh, in this case, it certainly is not. 
uh, uh, when you look at just the dollars and cents here, uh, it's important to remember that for a person who has diabetes, and uh, by the way, these are numbers uh, from the American Diabetes Association, they say that according to a recent study that was published, the average cost of diabetes or treatment for these individuals is close to $10,000 a year. They mm. typically have healthcare costs, 16, 17,000 a year, 10,000 of which is directly related to their diabetes treatment in terms of uh, insulin shots, as well as continuous uh, blood glucose monitoring. Mm -hmm. uh, and so when you then compare that to what the drug actually does, so in the clinical trials, uh, what they found is that the median time delay in a type 1 diabetes diagnosis, full-blown diagnosis, was roughly two years compared to placebo. So at the median, some people, it will be delayed longer, some people less, but at the median, it was two years. So if you consider two years worth of costs in the healthcare system to treat that person with diabetes, you're looking at about $20,000. <laughs> well, compare that to the $194,000 <laughs> price tag, and you can see sure. that it, in just strict economic terms, um, it, the, this, the price of this drug is pretty outrageous. Now, yeah. there, you have to also consider that there are non-economic factors here. Um, Certainly, delaying type 1 diabetes uh, entails a, a, a difference in that person's lifestyle. The fact that the person has to constantly do, you know, uh, prick themselves to measure their, their blood glucose uh, multiple times throughout the day, doing those insulin shots uh, constantly, it definitely is an improvement in lifestyle that you ne not necessarily can put a price on. Right. But, but when you just comparing those two numbers, the 194,000, 20,000, even if we were to say double that or even triple that in terms of not just the economic benefit, but the benefit in, in the improvement in that person's lifestyle, it's still full of this price tag. And so, it, in my mind, it's completely unjustifiable. Greg, I suspect most people won't raise an eyebrow over the cost of the drug because most people don't pay directly for drugs out of pocket. So does this mean that the cost should not matter? Yeah, so this is a really good question. I appreciate you asking it because this is oftentimes the refrain by people. First of all, there's plenty of people uh, most people do not have type 1 diabetes, so they, you know, actually may ask the question, how does this really affect me? Um, but the, the problem with that is that drug prices and what insurers pay for these drugs, not just the copay that you pay at the point of sale, but the rest of the cost of that drug, the vast majority of the cost of that drug that's paid by a person's insurance, whether it is private insurance or it's Medicaid or Medicare, hmm. the vast majority of that gets priced into the premiums that every single one of us pays. And it gets priced into what we spend in terms of public health care dollars, whether it's Medicare, whether it's Medicaid. Medicaid is the state program. 
So combined federal and state dollars, um, that affects what states can spend on in terms of their budgeting priorities. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, I mean... It's really important to remember that you know, this, this has ripple effects financially throughout the system that isn't just about what a person's pay or co-insurance is when they purchase the drug. It's much, much bigger than that in terms of how it affects yeah. of our insurance. Yeah, because, you know, you think of a family of four and they pay probably, what, 25 grand for insurance and... Right. co-pays and everything so you could see where these costs come in now to be fair drug makers spend many years millions of dollars developing drugs they are required to go through a lengthy and expensive drug approval process and then the drug may go generic okay so in about 12 years um somebody else they'll lose the competition they'll lose the the uh, capture on the market is the price justifiable on those grounds yeah, so uh, this is the way that our drug market has always worked, is that there's been this uh, implicit agreement between drug companies and the public in that the drug companies will spend quite a bit on R&D. The pharmaceutical industry is the most uh, R&D-intensive industry there is. And in exchange for the risk that they're taking – We've made this bargain with them that we will will pay a, a, a pretty penny, you know, for access to those drugs. And the United States gets access to the, you know, new drugs faster than anyone else. Now, part of that is because we're a very large country with hundreds of millions of people, and it's a very large market. So the problem is this bargain is uh, it has gone out of balance. And so uh, when it comes to small molecule drugs, your tablets and capsules, mm -hmm. those generally get five years of exclusivity from the FDA so that there's no competition to that new drug. And then after that, generic competition can enter the market. And that has worked reasonably well. That's due to Hatch-Waxman Act uh, that was passed in 1984. The problem is... A, Drugs that are biologic, and P-Zield is one of those. It's a monoclonal mm -hmm. antibody, so it's a biologic drug. And we've talked about this on the podcast previous, where yeah. those drugs get 12 years of exclusivity, and there are other games that the drug companies play in order to build, for example, patents that gets around biologic products that prevent competition from entering the market. So they're getting at least 12 years, oftentimes longer, uh, to recoup their investment. Mm. And so um, what, what we have found, too, in our own research at FreeOp is that we could have uh, drug pricing reform, and we can lower what we spend on drugs in the U.S. without substantially harming innovation, because it turns out that a lot spending by drug companies, especially large incumbent pharmaceutical companies, is pretty wasteful. They spend a lot of R&D per new drug that they develop, such that if we were to reduce prices on drugs and we were to spend somewhat less, mm -hmm. we won't substantially harm innovation because they're not developing a whole lot of new, truly innovative treatments for all those R&D dollars that they're spending. 
And so the point is that, yes, the approval lengthy, and we at FreeUp have ideas to accelerate the approval process so that we are paying less for, for R&D. But really, in reality, the reason why the price tags are as high as they are is because we allow the drug companies to charge those kinds of prices. It's government policy that has given drug companies monopoly pricing power in these markets, and they are pricing the product where they want to maximize profit. It is not about recovering R&D spending. Which, which brings me to my next question, because we've got a lot of patients who are probably on Medicaid. And so mm-hmm. it's going to be taxpayers who are going to be on the hook for this drug. How is that going to work? Absolutely. Is this going to drive up health care costs, taxpayer dollars? Yeah, this is in particular uh, with Medicaid is a really big concern with T-Zield in particular. And the reason for this is because uh, a third of children in the United States right now are on Medicaid. Um, that is typically when a person is diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. It's pediatric patients. Mm-hmm. And so you could see how most patients, now it, it, it's not always the case that you're diagnosed as a child. Some people are diagnosed with type 1 diabetes in adulthood, but it's very rare. So you could see how a large number of the people who would qualify that would meet the requirements to to be able to receive it and have it paid for are in Medicaid. They're children in Medicaid. And so this should be a really big concern, particularly for states, because most states have to balance their budgets, unlike the federal government. And so as these costs rise within the Medicaid program, and they will rise substantially with this drug, then it, it, squeezes out other spending priorities for the states. And so to give you an idea how much this drug could cost with Medicaid, um, in order to have your drug uh, paid for by Medicaid, you have to participate in Medicaid's drug rebate program. So uh, what happens is with new drugs, Typically, the rebate that is set in statute is a 23.1% rebate on, on, the, uh, on the price of the drug. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that, that's, it, it's, it's a little more complicated than that, but roughly that's what we're looking at. And so this drug could cost around $150,000 full course of treatment. And so... you. And it doesn't take that many patients for this drug to cross over a billion dollars in the Medicaid program alone. It's wow. not even for any spending with Medicare or with commercial insurance. And when you're getting above a billion dollars for Medicaid, you're starting to talk about, you know, two and a half percent of mm-hmm. Medicaid's drug spending per year. That is really significant from one single drug. So this this could be uh, a real strain fiscally for the Medicaid program and by extension for states with, yeah. with this particular drug. And I, 
I mean, it's out there. So you have to, if a patient wants it, are they going to be able to get it? Is it going to be up to the states to say, no, we're not paying for this? Or, I mean, how will that work out? Well, and here's the issue too, is that within Medicaid, as long as the company is participating in the drug rebate program with Medicaid, Medicaid has to cover that drug. They don't have the choice to exclude it. Now, see, that's different from commercial insurance, where sometimes if a drug is expensive compared to current treatment, the, the health insurance company has the option to exclude that drug from their drug formulary. And they say, we won't pay for it, or they will put it at a, at a higher tier where the copay is larger in order to help control drug costs, right? Mm-hmm. Medicaid does not have that mechanism at all. I will say there's one notable example of that, and that is with the managed care waiver that Tennessee has. They actually do have the power to exclude drugs from their formulary, but they got that that um, provision in their waiver during the Trump administration right before uh, Biden assumed office. And as as of now, a similar waiver like that has not been approved anywhere else. Wow. And so by and large, by and large, Medicaid programs throughout the states have to pay for every FDA approved drug as long as the companies that make those drugs participate in the rebate program. And I guarantee you Prevention Bio has done that because they can make a truck full of money just in the Medicaid program alone. That's amazing. And you could see where this is going. If your private insurance does not cover this drug, the incentive there is now to figure out a way to reduce your income to qualify for Medicaid. <laughs> so you can get the drug, right? I don't know. I mean, if yeah, people go to that extent. It, it, and the thing is, we don't know how large and effective it would actually be. Um, but the fact is, we see that very same phenomenon with long-term care because uh, Medicaid is the payer of last resort for long-term care. So there is an entire cottage industry of, of uh, elder law attorneys. You oh, can yeah. look this up. Uh, you could do a Google search and you'll get millions of hits for elder law attorneys that help people adjust their finances in order to qualify for Medicaid. And you could see the same thing being applied here. But the thing is for, uh, especially for children in Medicaid, the income thresholds are much higher than they're Mm -hmm. going to be for, for, for example, your ACA expansion population for those adults that, that are in those states where they've expanded Medicaid, the thresholds for children are typically much higher than that. So you're, you're going to get a lot more children that would be able to qualify and you wouldn't have to, a lot of families would not have to adjust their finances all that much in order to accomplish that. If they feel that this, uh, whether that's going to create this mass wave of doing that, um, I, I'm skeptical of that, but you, you could see, I could definitely see anecdotal <laughs> Yeah. Uh, Instances of that happening. Yeah. Um, I'm going to cut right to the chase. I mean, if we had a normal healthcare system in that it was more reflective of a free market, would we even be having this discussion? Yeah, that's a great question. 
So one important thing to remember as a caveat to all this is that so long as we have health insurance, it is not, healthcare is never going to be this just absolute pure free market. The fact that we have a third party payer system in the United States, like you have most anywhere else in the world, it's going to insulate the patient from the true effects of a price like 194000 for a full course of treatment like this drug has. And so it's important to remember that that dynamic is always going to be there in the U.S. healthcare system. The, the real question is, how do we restore a competitive balance with drug pricing in the United States? Because we definitely aren't there yet. And, you know, the IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act, was passed late last year, it's, it, and it's for a handful of drugs in Medicare. With TZIL, it's, you know, that drug's probably never going to fall into the price negotiations uh, from, the, from the Inflation Reduction Act simply because it won't gain that level of sales. There's not that many patients in Medicare that would take this drug. Mm. But... Um, but it, but throughout the rest of the healthcare system for this particular drug, this drug exists and the launch price as it stands now exists because we have set government policy to allow that kind of pricing. Uh, you know, we, we want to reward innovation and we grant drug companies monopolies to do that. But our argument here is that we have uh, made that monopoly pricing uh, tilt too far in favor of the pharmaceutical companies. They are exploiting the system, uh, using a system to their advantage, and it's coming at the cost of us being able to afford healthcare. And so we want to restore that competitive balance, and we've mentioned some ways to do that previously, whether it's aligning biologics with Hatch-Waxman so that the FDA exclusivity period is shorter, uh, reforming patent laws so that drug companies can't file frivolous patents to trip up other companies to develop uh, generics or biosimilars to those drugs. And, I, and we would argue, too, that uh, especially with biologics, we mm -hmm. need to do a better job of making those drugs interchangeable uh, with the original biologic product at the pharmacy level. Yeah. So when you go to the pharmacy and you have a prescription slip for that drug, the, the fact that in the United States, the, the pharmacy can automatically substitute a brand name, a generic for the brand name is a big driver of why 90% of pharmaceuticals by volume in the U.S. are generic. generic. And that's fantastic. That helps drive the cost down but it's that 10 percent of drugs those brand name drugs that are really breaking the bank especially within programs medicaid and until we make it easier for the patient to get their hands on the generic or, or really biosimilars making those interchangeable and, and changing the way the fda views those until we get those and other reforms in place the drug companies are just going to continue to take advantage. They're going to continue to exploit that pricing power and maximize profit at the expense of 
affordability of healthcare in the U.S. Well, Greg, this was a great discussion. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast and setting the record straight. I'm, I'm sure this is not going to be the last high-priced drug we see. And at least, you know, for now, we can think more critically about these touted blockbuster drugs, that there is a huge price to pay for them. Um, tell, tell our listeners, before I let you go, tell our listeners where they can find more of your work. Yeah, so freeop.org, that's F-R-E-O-P-P.org. You can find uh, all of our work, not just in healthcare, but uh, anything when it comes to the financial markets and inflation, which people are struggling a lot with right now, or housing, education, uh, you name it, we cover it. And uh, that's the website, F-R-E-O-P-P.org. Awesome. All right, Greg Gervin, thank you so much. Uh, Greg Gervin is a fellow on healthcare policy at FreeOp. And thank you listeners for tuning in as always. If you like this discussion, spread the word about the Heartland Daily podcast because it really does help get the free market message out and inform people why healthcare is the way it is. Uh, We'll be back again. This is Anne-Marie Schieber.